Our scripture today is Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Thank you, Bruce, for reading. Sometimes you can just tell a difference. You walk into a store and it seems like the staff and it seems like the, the people that are there, there's just something different than the average experience. Sometimes you walk into a doctor's office and you can clearly tell you aren't just the number, but you matter and everything is communicating that. And sometimes you watch a sports team and you can tell a difference. You can tell that that sports team, for whatever reason, they're coached differently or they have a different priority set or there's a team dynamic and you can just tell. Sometimes it's hard to even put words on it, but you can tell a difference. You can tell there's something different. And I think Hebrews is beating the drum of a people who are called Christians who are meant to look different. In Hebrews 11, we are the people following Jesus. We are people who walk by faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are people, as Christians, we are people who are running a race with endurance. In Hebrews 12, we're, we're people running a race with endurance while we're looking to Jesus. We're meant to be different. We are, we are people who are looking for something better. That is a heavenly Jerusalem, as Hebrews 12 talks about, as we discussed last week. There's a difference. There are things that are going to mean our lives are set apart. And especially as we come, to, come toward the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer is getting even more explicit in how those differences should take shape in our lives. And I want to look at some of those in what in what Bruce read a moment ago. I want to look particularly at three areas, three areas of responsibility. We have lifestyle differences that are meant to be seen in the lives of Christians. Three areas of life where we'll have lifestyle choices to make to show we identify with Jesus Christ. And then I also want to look at this passage as well through the lens of a particular relationship of leaders and those who are following leaders. So that's the roadmap today. These three areas where our life is meant to look different and then also a relationship. That's where we're going. The the first of those three visible areas that I see this passage pointing us to is that we are meant as Christians to show compassion, to show compassion to brothers and sisters to show compassion to strangers, to show compassion to those who are mistreated. Even the first verse says, let brotherly love continue. 
We're meant to show compassion to brothers and sisters, to strangers, and to those who are mistreated. When you see the word brotherly, let brotherly love continue, it'd be easy to go by like, well, maybe that's just thing, the kinds of things that Christians said, which is true. And yet it's something very different than the world in which Christians were living. As a matter of fact, you, you only and really ever use the word brother or sister to talk about someone who is biologically related, like part of your family, that was the brother and sister. Or you might use it and extend it a little bit further of someone of the same ethnicity. But you would never use it to describe someone of a different ethnicity, a different family. Except for that's exactly what Jesus left us with. That's exactly how Jesus wanted us to use these words, brother and sister, with people of which we don't share the same family DNA. We don't, we don't maybe don't even share the same ethnicity or nationality. We're brothers and we're meant to treat each other like that. That's exactly what Paul picked up on the, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you don't have any need for us to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Brotherly love. Peter said it this way. It's Peter 1, verse 22. Having your souls purified by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A major theme with the first followers of Jesus is we love like brothers. We love like sisters. Hebrews has already acknowledged chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 10. You're a part of a household. So you may think of yourself individually as a Christian, and that's true, but you're part of a household, a family of God. And the idea It's like you are loving each other. Let's continue that. Let's keep growing in that. Let's not stop that. Let brotherly love continue. There's another another marker here of compassion. Compassion that shows itself in hospitality to strangers. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The idea there comes from even Genesis 18 and 19 where... Uh, individuals in the Old Testament thought they were talking to, thought they were talking to people and found out they were actually talking to angels. There's a lot of mystery clouding that, but, but I also like to say, look at that first part. Do not, or be certain that you're showing hospitality. Don't neglect this, but receive people who maybe are far away from their homes, receive them into your home. You can put yourselves in their shoes. These are especially brothers and sisters in Christ, far away from their home. A regular dynamic of a church body will be welcoming people into our homes. I love even a picture of that because this afternoon, a, a church family is hosting a picnic for international students, internationals that are a long way from their homes. And like they're just demonstrating this and this happens over and over at Ogletown. It's, it is, though, uh, an invitation right, to think through maybe the past three months of your, I don't know, your social calendar, and to think through who far from their home has been invited into your home. Where have you honored this hospitality to strangers? Do you have space for that? There's even another dimension, and you see that in verse 3, of this idea of showing compassion. Remember those who are in prison. Remember, And by that, he means like, 
Yeah, be concerned and give help. Act according to those needs. They have physical, emotional, spiritual needs. Remember those who are in prison. Particularly, I think in this case, is in prison for Jesus. Remember them and serve them. Just imagine what it would be like to be in prison with them for Jesus. You hear that teaching of Jesus echoed. So, Matthew 25, Jesus is talking and he, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. And his followers go like, where did that happen? Lord, we, we don't remember this interaction with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, listen, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So there is this impulse that we are to look after those who are suffering, look after those who are being mistreated. You're still in this life. You're still in this body. So look out for those. How can you relieve? How can I relieve? How can I listen? I mean, surely people are carrying just such heavy loads. Is there any way I can lighten that load for someone? Can I give them my attention? Which means all I can give them, but can I give them my attention? Could I pray for them? Could I walk alongside with them? I feel like those opportunities, are there not just a number of those opportunities that will be available to you and me this week? Remember those who are mistreated. Show compassion. And I, I 100% realize I'm saying this to a church that in many of these cases does this and does this well. I think of those who show compassion to in foster care and adoption situations. Those who look out, those who support life there. I just want to keep encouraging you. So God is good. God is powerful. God's ways are so much higher than ours. And he places people into our lives for a reason. Like you could live your life not ever meeting the handful of people that you might meet this week. But yet he put them in there for a reason. And could it be an opportunity for us to show compassion? No one size fits all, but dozens and dozens and dozens of opportunities to assess each situation and move toward people in compassion. Do we hear that? Do we hear like a marked difference of the people who are followers of Jesus? And there's another one. There's another marked difference in verse 4. Do you, do you have the Bible open? Look at, look at verse 4. It says, let merit be held in esteem or honor among everyone. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If another mark of the difference for, for us as Christians, another mark is that we are meant to honor marriage and to live with sexual faithfulness. We are meant to honor marriage. Everyone, everyone is told honor, marriage should be honored among everybody. The institution of marriage, treasured, whether you're married or whether you aren't, treasured because of God's designs for it, valued and protected at all costs. Surely Jesus knew that he would give his blood, he would give his life for a community, a community not just made up of married people. So he knew that. He knew that in his body there would be people who would be married and people who would be single. He knew there would be people that were single by circumstance, sometimes even single by vow. 
He knew there would be widows. He knew there would be people who are married, but their spouse doesn't come. Maybe their spouse is not a believer. He knew there would be children in this community. And he says, do all of us honor marriage? And marriage can be honored in so, way, so many ways by everyone. I, I think marriage is honored when, when single men encourage their married friends, their married friends who are male, to deny yourself and be faithful to your spouse. Walk in integrity in marriage. But I also think marriage is honored by all when a married woman encourages a single woman to continue to walk with Jesus and be faithful to the Lord. I think marriage is honored by all when there are spiritual friendships that develop, not just between couples, but couples and singles. And God brings together, as a family, brings together a a church and like everybody is in this to honor one another and to care for one another, give support, brotherly and sisterly support, whether you're married, whether you're single. I think we honor marriage when we recognize those believers among us, again, whose spouse doesn't attend, maybe isn't yet a believer. And we lean in with extra care and extra support. I think we honor, marriage is honored by all when we see, we observe the devastating impact that pornography has on women and men. And we work our hardest together to fight against that impact. Fight the the struggle, fight the sin because we honor marriage so much. We honor marriage when teachers and leaders hold to and practice biblical teaching on marriage. Marriage is honored. And this passage also says marriage is honored and the bed, the marriage bed is undefiled. It's a discreet way of talking about the sexual relationship in marriage. There's a distinct, special, God-designed purpose for a sexual relationship. And this is saying, this is saying husbands and wives must be faithful to each other. And sex before marriage and outside of marriage is out of bounds, outside of that marriage covenant. God is requiring sexual exclusivity between a man and woman in the covenant of marriage. This has been the steady teaching of God all throughout Scripture, and it has not changed. And as far as sexual activity outside of marriage, we even get another look into that. In, it says God will judge, in verse 4, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's strong, strong words. Why? Why is it so strong? Why full strength? I think it's in part because God knew that every culture, every culture imaginable, will come up with different ways and different lines to draw. Oh, ours isn't the first to think there are other acceptable practices than the one we just heard. Ours isn't the first to come up with a different, a different way of looking at this. But God is drawing these lines very, very clear to show us exactly his design for how you were made, how I am made. Scripture repeatedly outlines sexual faithfulness. Sometimes in Deuteronomy, it says, honor the Lord in this way for your good. Other times, like in Ephesians 5, it's there is a marriage covenant and God wants to portray the exclusivity that Christ has to his church by the exclusivity that exists between husband and wife in marriage. But here we hear the word of warning. 
judgment comes from God on all forms of sexual activity expression outside the marriage covenant, the marriage covenant of a man and a woman. So, I mean, this is saying, let's just make sure we don't flinch here. This is saying there is a path to the judgment of God. Sexual immorality and adultery will put you in the path to experience that judgment. And it's no secret. I mean, like, we can be grown-ups here. We recognize that as long as there have been Christians who have shared God's teaching on this, that way of looking at things has been looked at by, again, all over the world as repressive, as maybe even bigoted, as somehow like, what kind of strange rules do you have? And yet God is so good, and God knows the future infinitely better than you or I do. And God looks after us in such a way that the words that Jesus give us, gives us, that the words that the Holy Spirit inspired for us here are meant to be paths of blessing that you and I would miss if we decide to ignore this. It, it's boundaries that if we decide, I'm going to go on this side of the boundary because I'm going to do things the way I want to. We're putting ourselves into a place where actually we won't receive good, we'll, we'll be harmed. And before we move on, I have to think, when we lean in and hear it so clearly, this could be a place where regret after regret after regret over sexual sin feels like it is just paralyzing. Maybe the voice in your head and in your heart is so filled with guilt right now. What does this mean for you? I would say based on the words of Jesus, what it means for you is this is your opportunity to repent, to turn, and to go to a father who knows how to forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want that cleansing. We don't want this guilt hanging over us. So there is an opportunity here, not to justify, not to excuse, not to downplay, not to minimize, not to, well, I think I see it a different way that somehow conveniently gives you a license to do it. No, no, none of that, but an opportunity to say, I hear God's words. I don't want to receive God's judgment. So I'm going to lean into his grace and mercy. That's the opportunity for all of us to experience today. And if you've fallen, get back up and ask for help. If you're fighting sin alone, oh my goodness, this is why God gave us a church family. Too much is at stake for you to just have good intentions today and leave here with just good intentions. Too much is at stake. There are too many resources available, namely the grace of God that is even going to come through other believers. Don't let sin have place. Show compassion. Honor marriage. You see, I mean, this is telling us you might look different. You will look different if you have these markers in your life. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So here's another difference. We are meant to free ourselves from the love of money. We're meant to trust in what God provides. We are meant to free ourselves from the love of money. 
So keep your life, the way you do life, keep that from always being about money. And you may say, it's not all about money because I don't have any. You can still be all about, boy, if I did have, if I did have, this is what I would love. This is what I would do. And you could be consumed with what others have. So this is like open for all to be tempted here. Don't make what your life all about it, always needing more. Be happy with what you have, which does go sometimes against the grain of common sense. It says like, well, well, man, I work for it. I, I should be able to enjoy it. And I should be able to do whatever I want to. Or maybe I was just lucky. I was born in the right family and I got a ton of money and I don't have to think about other people's problems. But then I would remind you even the words of Jesus where he says you, you can't serve God and money. Like, no one can serve two masters. We're called to think about, okay, if I have a greedy, money-loving attitude, how does that affect not just me, but my brothers and sisters in Christ? If instead of being generous, I hoard stuff, make my life 75% more comfortable, because I can't. Who else misses out because of the generosity I could have shown? Even more than that, verse 5 says, yeah, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And generally when you read like he has said, you go back to like, where did he say it? Where is that said in scripture? The challenging part of finding like, where did he say, I will never leave you or forsake you? Is it said so many times? It's just said over and over and over again. So God gives his word to Jacob and says, in Genesis 28, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised. Moses' word to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. God reiterates that word of Moses to Joshua by saying this in Joshua 1, just as I was with Moses, God speaking, So Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. David says to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, be strong and courageous. The Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Again and again. I think the Lord wants us to get this message. You're not exposed where you'll just be devastated, where harm will come to you. I'm not going to leave you isolated there. I am with you. Even in your sufferings, I'm with you. I will never leave you. So we confidently can say, you know what? The Lord is my helper. The Lord's coming to my rescue. I will not fear what can man do to me. I can say to myself, money isn't my rescuer, which is actually hard to say because sometimes it seems like, yeah, money would solve a lot of things. It would make my life so much easier. And this says, there's a perspective of faith where we say, now, we'll say the Lord is my helper. He responds to a call for help. God is so good, so powerful. We can be confident in the ways he's promised to provide. It just may make sense to pause here for a moment because we can get these kind of commands, this view of living, these three areas, and we could hear them. But Jesus said it's not so much about those who hear his word, but those who hear it and put it into practice. Those are the wise people. Hear it and put it into practice. So maybe this is an opportunity we have to think about. Maybe you journal later. Maybe you even best yet, talk with another believer about the ways you could put this into practice. Maybe you identify the three to four ways where 
okay, take inventory of your calendar. Take inventory of your conversations, digital conversations, face-to-face conversations. Take inventory of your bank statement, tangible things. Could you document, could I document three to four specific ways in which I am showing compassion to brothers, sisters, strangers, mistreated? And is that showing anywhere in my life? Or am I just going to politely nod and go, I have a lot of good stuff there. How does this like find its way into our lives in ways where we do honor marriage and we take these three or four actions because we want to be living with sexual faithfulness? Where does it show up when we are giving so that we're freed from always having to have more? Where does that show up? Before we're done, I do want to spend just a couple of minutes continuing on in this passage. But the next section talks about leaders. And I just want to recognize some of the awkwardness and bring you maybe into some of the awkwardness of a church leader talking about what church leaders should do and how people should respond to church leaders. There's definitely a measure of challenge in that. Not just because it's a little bit difficult and certainly you could perceive there's some self-interest in it, But frankly, it's hard to speak of church leadership these days because it seems like every single month that goes by, there's another scandal. And I don't sit high in judgment over these, but it is extremely, extremely disappointing even this week. There's a report given on our denomination of which we're a part of and how church leaders didn't didn't respond as they were supposed to. And so I just recognized the challenge. And maybe though, instead of like bypassing this because of the awkwardness of a church leader talking about how to respond to church leaders, maybe it's even more important. It's in God's word and we need it. So maybe we should like make sure the standard is clear because what I'm positive is I'm not going to fully meet any standard that's perfect by God. I understand we're going to fail, but, but maybe this gives us a window into seeing where the standard should be for the way people should lead in the church of Jesus Christ. And I also think, like many of you, are, you're not going to be at Ogletown for the rest of your life. And, and there may be a time where you go to another church, maybe a church in our area, maybe a church outside of our area. And so what should you look for in church leaders? And well, let, let's listen to what God has to say. In verse 7, verse seven, we can kind of lean in here. It says, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, it seems like these are past leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. It's not just like, oh yeah, I remember him. Not not kind of remember. Remember in a way where you know, like I remember them speaking God's word. I remember they were all about God's word and its work in my life. I remember she was invested in God's word fleshing itself out of my life. Remember leaders, and look at their lives, look at how they live, look at even how they die, how they walk, imitate their faith. The idea is you have the same kind of confidence in God that they had. You show the same kind of trust in God that they showed. And you can do this because in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same. He never changes. He hasn't changed in the past. He doesn't change in the present. He won't change in the future. Remember your leaders. Another verse adds to this in verse 17. Again, that word leaders comes up. Only this time it says, obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. 
as those who will give an account, those who will have to give an account. I'll let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. Seems like verse 7, you can see it. It talks about almost former leaders. Verse 17 is talking about present leaders. The word is obey, and again, what I recognize is he's 13, 17, could easily and has been abused. It's been as a way of like, well, you just like silence all questions. Unqualified trust is what's being called for. Blind trust, blind obedience, it's been used that way. But actually, if you read the word obey, the word is interesting. In the original, it's like an idea where you're convinced because someone has proven themselves trustworthy. You can obey and you can follow. You can trust because you're convinced there's a posture. You've been persuaded and you're ready to follow. Why would you be able to do that? Because it says that leaders aren't just the head honchos who make decisions, but leaders in Christ's church are those who keep watch over your souls. The idea embedded in this word is they're tireless in this. The idea is they're constantly caring. They cannot rest. There's a pressure, and you might know that pressure. You might know the pressure of you're a friend of someone, and you care about them, and you cannot rest because you know things are not okay with them, and so you feel that pressure. Like you can't not care. You have to care. Some of you know this as a parent, as a grandparent, as, a, as an uncle, as an aunt. You feel that. You feel that. And it's like it, you can't rest because you want things to be okay with them. And that is exactly what leaders are meant to feel. The pressure they're meant to feel. The constant care they're meant to feel. Because... They must give an account. In other words, they must explain to God how they've carried out their responsibility. They must explain to God how they've done their work. It's recognizing, I'll have to explain to God for how I've cared for you. And so will the other leaders. The idea is like, the goal is for them to be able to do so with gladness and not sadness. The goal is to give it everything we've got. So that the accounting on that day of saying, Lord, no one's perfect, but Lord, I did my best. I wanted to be faithful. If I mapped out the relationships from verse 7 and 17, it's kind of two sides of this, aren't there? There's the church family side. And on that side, we would see this is a responsibility of the entire church family is that we observe a way of life. So if leaders are living the way they're supposed to, you observe their way of life. You imitate their faith. You kind of follow Jesus. You follow godly leadership. That should be the posture. You, you see godly leadership. And, and even if you, as you have questions, you ask the questions, but there's a posture of like, I want to follow. There's also a recognition that you are one that could be accounted for. I mean, implied in this is if leaders are supposed to give an account, they have to, who am I giving an account for? And so those who are evident, those who show up, those who invest time, those who this is why we emphasize membership, because it's one way of us knowing, like, who am I going to give an account for? Or are you growing in that? Are you leaning in to say, I'm going to make it easier for the leaders, for the shepherds to give an account? There's a responsibility there. There's a responsibility on the leader's side. There's a responsibility implied in verse 7 and 17 that one of my roles, one of our roles 
is to speak God's word to you. To say it faithfully, to handle it accurately. Not to make stuff up that you'll like to hear, but to handle God's word accurately. To live a life where with all humility, where you say, you can follow me as I follow Christ. A life where you're building over time, building trust, building confidence, because you're building into the lives of people an ability that makes it easy to follow. A life where you care, tirelessly caring, because you know one day you'll have a divine audit. And the Lord will say, let's give an account. It gives you a picture of the relationship. You see what I'm talking about, responsibilities and a relationship. It's meant to be different. Lifestyle choices that look different. I'm actually, we generally close prayer, but I'm going to close in a little bit different way. I'm going to close in reading some scripture. I'm going to ask the band to come. I'm going to close in scripture and then we're going to sing. I want you to just hear the words of scripture. I want you to hear Jesus as he tells a crowd in Matthew 5. Hear these words as if they're said to Ogletown today. Let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I want you to hear the words of Paul. He picked up some of that in Philippians 2, verse 15 and 16, where he he tells us, be blameless and pure, children of God, faultless in a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you are shining like stars in this world by holding firm to the word of life. Or the words of Peter, where he says, church, conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles. So that even when they like slander you as evildoers, they observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day he visits. Those are the differences that mark out the people of God. Can I invite you to stand? Let's sing.